I was thinking, let me try both. I don't want to be 50 and say I didn't try, you know? And so we started doing shows with NSYNC and The Temptations and 98 Degrees. And we were touring all over the country. And like, we started out at Nana's Bake Shop. Our first gig was like John's cousin and, you know, somebody's sister and like the staff at the place. I forget, probably 95 or 96. And then now we want to play at a 50-person place. Now we want to play at a 100-person place. Wouldn't it be nice to play in front of 500 people and so on? And then culmination for me was the 80,000 people at the hat shell for the 98 Degrees Kiss concert. People as far as you could see, three-story towers of speakers blasting our voices out across the Charles River. The last week of my life, I'll remember that moment. And that that was enough to say it was worth it. Even though I completely screwed up my earning power over the course of my career, 10-year hiatus of like boy band acapella slash bar owner. And I had to kind of start at the bottom again almost when I was 39 years old. You know, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a senior data analyst at a little ad tech firm in Columbia, Maryland. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, I share with you some lessons that we can learn from the end of Bill Belichick's tenure as a head coach of the Patriots. My guest today is Jason Downey, U.S. CEO of a digital tech and marketing consulting firm named Making Science. Jason had a fascinating career. One could actually argue that he both did and did not follow the traditional path to become a CEO. See, he spent the first 10 years of his career working as a part-time consultant for Bain while being a member of a successful touring a cappella group. In our conversation, we talked about how music played a significant role throughout his career until it didn't how waiting tables at a restaurant impacted his leadership style, and then going from a small company to Google, and then finally finding his right spot in a mid-sized company. Enjoy the show. Jason, why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners, you know, who you are, how you got here, and you can take as little or as much time as you want. Well, I do like to hear myself talk, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll go the medium to longish introduction. So Jason Downey, Obviously, I've known you, Dino, for, I guess, 30 years now or so. And my first stop after college, you know, I went to Penn and my first stop was at Bain & Company. I was there for 10 years. And uh, during that time, I followed in the steps of Pat Burtis, who uh, was able to go halftime as a musician at Bain. And, uh, you know, I performed well enough there to, for Bain to allow me to do the same. So I uh, I was in a boy band, like acapella boy band for many years and uh, eventually quit Bain to do that full time and uh, toured the country singing a cappella. did 300 shows a year for a few years and lived you know did some consulting and client development out of the back of the tour bus and got to keep my benefits which was exciting moved down to Maryland I grew up in Boston uh, you know moved down to Maryland in uh, about 2002-2003 I ended up buying a bar uh, so I owned a, a local like uh, watering hole for seven years and ran pool leagues and dart leagues and cornhole tournaments and managed bartenders, which was a wild time. Got divorced in 08 and realized I had to get back to my, you know, with my three children, I had to get back to my business roots and do some, you know, responsible adult things again. So I uh, I found this company called Low to Me, which I had never heard of. I was just looking for a job in my area. I, I didn't know what a cookie was. I didn't know what digital marketing was. 
but I started back there. And in 10 short years, I went from senior data analyst to chief revenue officer, low to me. And then, uh, you know, while there, Google recruited me off of LinkedIn and I decided to make the jump, which was really exciting and rewarding. Three years at Google, got laid off in January of 2023, which was like, you know, I'm sure we'll t- talk a little bit more about that. But that was uh, the first time I'd ever been laid off, you know, 51 years old. It was a shocking thing, but found myself to be pretty in demand, which was nice and found making science and I became US CEO of making science. And so I've been there for just under a year now. And all the while I've been co-parenting and raising, you know, three awesome kids, um, met my wife in uh, 2015. And we, you know, got together for good in 2017, I guess, and I inherited a bonus stepdaughter named Maya, who's, um, so I've got two 25 year olds, basically, and a 21 and a 19. And just Trying to live life to the fullest at 52. There's so much in your story, which I think is one of the reasons why having known you for almost 30 years and despite the wild disparity of musical talent, having actually had the chance to perform with you once with uh, one of the first original corporate bands, the Bane Band in 1990, 1997. Amazing. I'm really interested in the the duality of the music career while consulting for Bain. What was that experience like? And, you know, when did you realize that you wanted to navigate the two things at the same time? We both know Pat. I mean, Pat Burtis was inspirational to me that the fact that it was even possible was a big, you know, inspiration, obviously. And then once, you know, for me, I got some executive coaching a few years ago for the first time, and I I found that super helpful. And the first thing the coach asked me to do was go find the five people that I knew really well in my life and ask them what, you know, in a few words, what they, how they would describe me. And it was really interesting, you know, and this things, it was like, these people have known lifelong friends. So they were very honest, you know, <laughs> so some things, you know, aren't as flattering, but what I pulled together from all that is that my tagline I think of is a, a, that what other people think of me is, and I never really thought of it this way. You know, we don't have the great perspective on who we are all the time is a passionate, independent thinker. So that's kind of like, you know, how I think about, I basically go where I think at the time the road is going to be best for me in my life. And I try to chase joy and I try to chase meaning and, you know, chase money and (laughs) all the things that we try to chase. And so at the time, I just thought it was like, music was my whole, I mean, everything about singing and, and music it's just been a part of my story. I mean, it's, it's no longer really, but it was for for the first, I don't know, 35 years of my life. And, and I'm here because of singing, like very weirdly. Like, you know, when I was five, I was harmonizing. And my mom, you know, single mom school teacher in, you know, Arlington, Mass. And the Boston Boys Choir came around in fourth grade. And they said, take all the fourth grade boys and come into the auditorium and everybody, we're going to sing happy birthday. And of course I just love to sing. It was like my favorite thing. And I was just like singing happy birthday at the top of my lungs. And he said, all right, everybody can go back to class except for you, Jason, you stay here. This was Ted Marrier, who was like legendary in the Boston area. So just, he founded the Boston boys choir, Boston arts Arts and choir school. And every year he would go around and take the, the best 10 or 15 kids in the Boston area from all different areas, walks of life, and and bring them into the school. And so it was free tuition. You know, it was like really good schooling. And then it was singing. And I mean, we, we sang at mass every single day, 8 a.m. mass from, you know, Monday through Friday. 
we had weddings and funerals on Saturday. They, you know, that's how we, you know, they paid for the school was they farmed us out Sunday mass, high, you know, high mass at 10 a.m. So I sang seven days a week and I just learned music theory to an extent where I was like, you know, we had to do solfege and we had to do sight reading and we had to do all this sort of stuff. So by the time I was in eighth grade, I was like the best, you know, my voice hadn't changed yet. So I was still singing boy soprano. He would send me off by myself to do like community theater and all this sort of stuff whenever a boy soprano was needed. So it was just really ingrained. And we would go to, you know, rehearsal from 7 a.m. to 7.40 every day, go to school from 8 until 2, 2.30, 3 p.m., rehearse again from 3 to 5 p.m., go home. This was for a fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader. So every single day was just jammed, you know, music. And I learned discipline and I learned how to how to be, you know, like a person, you know, or like keep developing at a young age. And because of that, I, my eyes were open to like different walks of life, you know, and I, I, I got into Milton Academy and then they gave me a scholarship, which is like a, you know, old school Shishi New England prep school, which like, I, you know, it's a million miles from Arlington. It's only 10 miles, but it might as well be a million. And so I got there on a scholarship. I was a boarding student and then I sang there. I, you know, I sang in the, in everything, chamber singers and the, the glee club and the, and we, we, we founded an acapella group and then acapella really started to really take, you know, hold for me. And I did well, it's, you know, in this, in the, with my grades and then I got into Penn. So now I'm in an Ivy league school and I like, you know, I was the first kid in my family ever to go to an Ivy league school. My mom and dad were the first generation to go to college, you know, which was a big privilege. You know, now, now I see much later that having my mom telling me every day, like you're going to go to college, you know, for a long time. And, but I got there again from singing, like, you know, just be, having the, all the school plays, you know, you need one big thing. Like that was my story. It was just, Boston Boys Choir, and then I was the lead in, in the musicals. I did the Mikado. I did the Fantastics. I played Matt in the Fantastics, and I actually played varsity baseball and basketball as well my, my sophomore and junior year, and I quit because I realized I was like, sports is not going to get me to the next thing, but music could. And so I, uh, I focused on music, and, and then I got into Penn, which was hard to get into, and I went to Wharton, you know, undergrad. I always kind of wanted to make money. I felt like just – I had this chip on my shoulder, kind of like Tom Brady, you know, our friend Tom Brady, you know, six round draft pick. I just felt like, I felt like at the prep school that I, I belonged there, you know, even though it was like a bunch of kind of wealthy kids that came there, you know, I went to school with Stephen King's kids and T.S. Eliot went there and da, da, da. And I just, it's, the world was open to me and I was like, this is just amazing. Now I want to prove myself and prove myself. And so, you know, I, and I went to Penn and I felt the same thing. I was like, look at all these Ivy League, a 250 year old school founded by Ben Franklin. And I'm as smart as these people. I can do this stuff, you know? And then I sang acapella in college and, and with Penn Six and we traveled around like on the weekends. And so it's just, music was always there, you know? So when I got to Bain, of course, as you mentioned, the, the Bain band was like, had to be in it. So it's very interesting because a lot of people with the type of passion and success for an art that you had with music would not come out of college and go and choose like a very traditional business route, like consulting. What was the driver for you in, in that choice? I had a professor at Wharton. I can't think of his name now, which is really bad, but he was a manager at Bain. And then he left and became a college professor. And he just told, you know, we did all the case studies and I just found it all fascinating. And like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I've always been good at math and I did well in school, but I was always trying to sing at the same time. So, I mean, I just had this dichotomous 
brain, you know, I'm interested in different things. And so I was good at it, you know, and I was just like, okay, let me, let me see. We were doing just in time, you know, Japanese like corporate principles and studying that and all that normal stuff that business students do. And, and he was like, you, you know, Bain does this and they have a band, right? So I was thinking about the Bain band when I was in college and uh, it's the culture is just different, but I didn't do well my first two years in college. I had like a 2.0 GPA. I was drinking a lot and partying and, you know, normal 18, 19 year old things. At least I thought it was at the time. I didn't mention earlier, we can talk about it or not, but like I quit drinking six over six years ago. And that was a kind of a, I never hit rock bottom, but I could see it from where I was, I like to say. And I just decided it was time to like change my life. And that's a big part of my story today. But anyway, so at the time in, in college, I was just like drinking and then I, and I took a year and a half off in college my mom said no more i'm not paying any more tuition for you good luck you know you, you screwed it up and i said great i waited tables for a year and a half and uh saved up some money and i met my my first wife at penn and she kind of helped me get you know priorities in order and things like that as as great women often do and then i went back to school and i paid my own way and i got all a's and i finished with a you know a 3.1 <laughs> like across the finish line so when my professor at Bain, you know, said, encouraged me to apply, I did. And we're going to come back to music again here right now. I sent my, you know, my resume in and I got a recommendation letter from the Bain, former Bain manager. And I, you know, said, here's my GPA 3.1 and didn't get an interview, right? Like didn't even get an interview. And I found out later after I got the job punchline first that like, of course I didn't get an interview. Like they would give me all the resumes from Penn. You know, and I'm busy working 80 hours a week trying to do stuff. And they're like, pick out 25 people out of this 400. And, and you know, so you have to like sort it somehow to start. And so 3.1 didn't didn't make the cut. But so I, I was undaunted when I was in Penn 6 in acapella. I had sung one of my solos that semester was a parody of the police song King of Pain. And so we had changed the words to Conrad Bain to sing about different strokes. So it was like, there's a little black boy on my TV show. Right. It's all, it's all about Conrad Bain and, and Gary Coleman and Dana Plato. Like, you know, where are the age to know that stuff? And so I said, maybe I could change the words again because I recorded it. We recorded it for our, for a record, for a CD at the time. So I went to my buddy who was produced the album, had all the equipment. And I said, hey, can you take out that my solo track and let me re-record it? And so I changed the words to Take Me Bane. And I sang, you know, there's a little black spot on my resume. Despite little experience, I need good pay. And I did the whole parody over. And I sent that back in on a cassette tape with my resume again. And I got the interview. <laughs> I got, you know, ace the four interviews, got the job. And then from then on, I was the tape guy, you know, like, so like Bane would bring me on, you know, recruiting visits to say, see, you can have a crappy GPA and still work here if you just, you know, have some ingenuity or whatever. So, so again, music got me the job at Bain. And that launch, like 2,000 tapes, poorly recorded. <laughs> <Perfect. at Bain. laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. I no, think, I think it, it does. So one of the things that always struck me in, in our interactions through the years is by the time I knew you, you were very comfortable in your dual identity as somebody who loved business and music. I remember having a conversation with you probably the last time that we ran into each other, maybe it must have been like three or four years after Bain when you were running Ball in the House, which is the acapella group. And the difference between the people that I knew who were trying to be musicians and how structured and 
business-like in a good way your approach was with Bull in the House. There was always, I feel, an entrepreneurial type drive in the things that you were doing at the time. When did you start intentionally thinking about the two sides of your personality and how they integrated? Was there a you know, a moment when you, you were doing it not just naturally because you were responding to a certain situation and starting to figure out, okay, these are the two things that I want to do? I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm not that smart. I, I think I just, I just kind of do what I feel is right and what I think is going to bring me, you know, an opportunity to like experience life. I've always kind of like been very aware of my mortality which is kind of a weird thing to say to that question, but like, I just, I feel like I don't have enough time. <laughs> and so I just want to make sure I get, get to lots of things and, and do things that I want to do. And so I used to tell my ex-wife, I said, you know, I don't want to be 50, which now it's fun, funny, I'm 52, but I used to always say, I don't want to be 50 and say, I didn't try, you know? And so to have this, uni- I, Pat, you know, again, like Pat Burtis was like, he went half time. He was an excellent consultant. He got promoted from associate to consultant without going to B school and he was playing great music and he was a singer songwriter. And I just really, he inspired me and he was like making good money. Halftime at Bain is pretty good money for being 25 or whatever. And he was get kept his benefits and he's singing and writing. And I was just like, I want to do that. You know? And, and when I moved back to Boston, I had met again, music, all this journey, you know how we, we just, people come in and out of our lives and we kind of like a cliche romantic comedy movie line. But if we recognize those moments and know how to take advantage of them at the moment, like the timing is a lot of things and all that sort of stuff. So I met two guys I went to the choir school with that I knew since fifth grade when I was at Bain and, and, and they, when I moved back to Boston and they said, Hey, can you come join this group we're starting called Ball in the House? This is 1995. And I was like, sure. And so it just was like a hobby. You know, I was doing it on the weekends and it was fun. And then we got good. And we started writing our own stuff. And like, we, I'll never forget this. There was a Monday night. It was probably 1998. We did a show at the House Jacks, you know, Deke Sharon at the House of Blues in Cambridge, which is no longer there, sadly. But the place held about 400 people. And we opened for the House Jacks, who were like the, the big deal. They're still, you know, touring and they make tons of money. And one of the most famous acapella groups outside of Rockapella maybe ever. Of course, no pentatonics now, but anyway. So we did the gig on a Monday. It was like 15 bucks to get in, 400 people sold out like to the rafters. Couldn't move in there. We opened for them. We did a 20 minute set. We left, we got off the back. Everybody left. Like the house jacks were coming on and like the place, half the people left. And we were like, holy crap, these people came to see us, you know? And so that was like a realization that like, we're doing something here, you know? And so then we, like, I started focusing on it more and we're doing writing more. And we're, I was like, it got to the, be the point where I was like, I can't do both full time. And so, you know, Pat had done his thing and I was like, I started asking questions at work and I, you know, it was top bucket. I had done, you know, enough to prove myself that I was worth keeping around. And like, I, like Bain and company this day, always like the vision they had to do that sort of thing was like, I'll always speak well of Bain because it was great. So that that was kind of like the time where I I was thinking, let me try both. I don't want to be 50 and say I didn't try, you know. And so we started doing shows with NSYNC and The Temptations and 98 Degrees. And we were touring all over the country. And, like, you know, we started out at Nana's Bake Shop. Our first gig was, like, you know, John's cousin and, you know, somebody's sister and, like, the staff at the place. And that was our first gig. I forget, probably 95 or 96. And then... 
it was like, now we want to play at a, you know, 50 person place. Now we want to play at a hundred person place. Wouldn't it be nice to play in front of 500 people and so on. And then culmination for me was the 80,000 people at the uh, hat shell for the 98 degrees, like kiss concert or whatever. And, you know, we were singing acapella on a stage at the hat shell people, as far as you could see. And like, three-story towers of speakers blasting our voices out across the Charles River. I mean, it was like across the Esplanade, you know, and I, that just, that moment, I'll ne- like the last week of my life, I'll remember that moment. And that that was a payoff. That was enough to say it was worth it. Even though I completely screwed up my my earning power <laughs> over the course of my career to kind of, you know, 10-year hiatus of like boy band acapella slash bar owner and, you know, I had to kind of start at the at the bottom again almost when I was uh I guess it was 2010 so I was like 30 39 years old you know and I was like okay I'm I'm a senior data analyst at a little ad tech firm in Columbia Maryland that and you know so I had to rebuild my career from for the last you know 14 years or so so you started as a data analyst but then quickly grew to chief revenue officer, then you had a senior position at Google for a number of years, and now you're a CEO. What did you take from those 10 years, both with the band and managing a bar, into how you're leading people now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's people, right? I waited tables when I was in college, right? I told you, like, in the break. And that was the beginning to me of really understand, like self-awareness is my favorite attribute that I think everyone should have more of, <laughs> including me. But like, you know, you walk in a room, read the room, what's the game here? You know, what what's happening and knowing your place in it, right? Whether it's in a small group or a big group or, in a you know, you're at a cocktail party or you're at a dinner or you're at a work event, whatever it is, like to me, re- having self-awareness to know where you fit in is, is the most critical skill for anybody in anything, really. And so... You know, when you're waiting tables, I told all my kids, they haven't all done it. A couple of them have. Like, you should wait tables for at least a year of your life so you can understand how to deal with strangers, how to deal with the public. How to, you know, you show up to the table and it's like, what's happening here, right? Is it a date? Is it two friends hanging out? Is it a family? Who's paying? Who, you know, how do I get my maximize my revenue here, right? And you have to make those decisions in like a minute you know, or two minutes and, 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 and how, you know, do you talk to the man? Do you talk to the woman? Do you talk to, you know, how do you, how do you make it all work and make the restaurant look good and you look good and you, and having your income based on like an interaction for three to five minutes to make an impression is, is really powerful, you know, and doing it over and over again. And you get a chance to try again at the next table if you screwed it up and so on and so forth. So iterating on that was really powerful. So I would say that I learned a lot there and I learned a lot owning a bar. Owning a bar is like hard, man. <laughs> it's really hard. You know, manage a P&L, understand like liquor licenses and, and health department and the fire department. I had days where I'd be like, you know, an example I always use is like the fire department wanted me to have the doors open outwards because, you know, if there's a fire, people have to push the, the safety bar and get out. And if and the liquor board wanted the doors to open inward because they didn't want people to you know, be able to like, uh, it's better security for keeping people in and, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, drinking or whatever. So like every disparate kind of organizations that have different rules that you need to follow and you have to like sort through all that mess and still make money. And you got customers whining that the drinks are too weak and you have like bartenders that may or may not be having a little sip on the side or whatever. 
And bartenders have huge egos, man. They they just they're your friendly neighborhood Ted dancing from Cheers. I mean, that's like the vision you have, but there's different levels of that. And what pushes people's buttons to show up to work and not steal and to do a good job and you motivate those people like, you know, prima donnas and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I learned so much about people. And then of course the band, as you know, you've been in some bands. I mean, traveling, spending more time with with five other guys who all have different family situations and different economic situations and different what makes them tick and superpowers and all that sort of stuff. And just trying to like make it all work and keep this disparate bunch of people together, you know, by sometimes by a thread. I just think that people, the things I learned about people during that time, you couldn't be in weirder, different situations, I think, than me. I mean, you could be you could be in as weird, I think, or as different, but like, it's just learning how people move through the world. Everybody's the same. I I, I posted on Facebook I don't know, several years ago, I was in New York and it was like one of those, you know, troubled political times like now. I mean, I, you know, it was, I think it was maybe 2016. I don't know, but it was pouring rain outside and like people are scurrying around trying to like get in their taxi or get, you know, have find an umbrella from the guy selling them for $5 on the corner or whatever, whatever. And it was kind of cold. It was like those nasty New York days. I was there all this past week and it was the same. Just New York is amazing and so fun to walk around. But when it's raining and cold, it's, it sucks. But I just remember thinking all these people, different colors, different ages, different incomes, different jobs, whatever. They all just want to get out of this rain. <laughs> they just want to be warm and safe. And I just I had an emotional moment standing there in the you know pouring rain on the corner of I don't know 7th and 34th or whatever it was. Just like, this is like not that hard. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants the same, you know, same sort of things, different ways and different ways to get there. But if you can figure that out for each person and what makes them tick and, you know, what are their superpowers and all that sort of stuff and what are they motivated by, you know, then you can, you can, you know, you're not going to win, but you're going to make progress. It sounds very easy, but <laughs> not always that easy to put into practice. What was the re-entry in the corporate world for you like after all those years? Yeah, I loved it. Again, I, I I was ready for it. I was looking for a job and I was like, okay, let's go back. <laughs> the thing I hated was that Excel had changed. That was really annoying. It's like, come on, Microsoft, can't you just keep... I took a class in college. Sorry, again, I'm a tangent master. But, I, but the most valuable class I ever took in the history of my life in college was... It was called Decision Sciences at the time. I didn't even know what that was, but it was like a warden class they offered. It was basically a class in Microsoft Excel. You know, they taught you what cells are and how to do things and program. I was programming in, I forget the name of the language at the time. They switched to Visual Basic. This was before Visual Basic. Who knows what it is now? It's like, but you can do macros and make it do your laundry and all that sort of, you know, move, remove cells and blah, blah, blah. So when I got to, to load me, I was like, I was excited. I was like, all right, let's build some spreadsheets. Let's build some models. Let's do some stuff. And I was just like raring to go, you know? So I loved it. And, you know, like I said, the Excel functionality was a little bummer, but you learn it. But I also learned a space that's like incredibly complicated. And so when I got, you know, I love to just, I don't know, I don't know if I love to solve problems, but I just love to like, I'm curious about like how it all works. And there's a guy in our, in our industry, he's a um, investment banking firm uh, called Luma Partners. His name is Terry Kawaja and he's a pretty influential guy in ad tech and he, he does deal monitoring and he helps consult on deals and things. And he has this thing called a Lumascape, which is basically this like quagmire of like companies that, you know, between a publisher and a marketer, there's a whole bunch of crap in the middle that do different things. And I remember that seeing that slide in my first week at Load Me, I was like, what is this? I didn't know what a publisher was. 
I never, I didn't know that publisher meant like I publish content and it's a website. I didn't know that like what ad agencies really did. I didn't know what a DSP was, an SSP, a DMP, like, you know, alphabet soup of our space. And so I just had to learn all that stuff and figure out where it all fit in. Like, I didn't know what inventory was. You talk about ad inventory or media. I didn't know what that was. Like, it's like people don't know this stuff. What's a cookie? What's, what's retargeting? I, you know, all this sort of stuff. So I was learning like a whole brand new, like, thing that didn't even like exist in my life for the first 40 years of my life and so I loved it I was just like and then of course the people and it's a small startup it's like 120 people and you're putting together desks on a Tuesday and then you're you know plugging in cables because you know Joe was out sick or whatever you know just really like doing all, all sorts of stuff and you can kind of write your own your own narrative there and so being at a very small company was exciting and fun and then data separate from media you know Listeners who don't know the space, I mean, you when you see an ad that's, you know, targeted to you, it's like there's cookies there, which are now going away. That's a whole other thing. And so there's data behind those, you know, interactions that that tell the internet, marketers, whoever, what you're interested in. So, like, I may go to ESPN because I like sports, and so they know I like sports. So they'll show me an ad for a Boston Bruins t-shirt or whatever, and that's all data that became separate from contextual, which before they would just show ads on ESPN because you like sports. But now you could show, you knew that I like sports from from those cookie interactions and you could show me an ad on a, you know, a lifestyle page, but a sports ad because you knew that I like sports, you know. So that data separate from media was a whole new field in 2010, right? And so I basically was in charge of, I ended up being in charge as I started to like learn things and weave my way through the company to like, to build a data exchange. So I was like building this thing from scratch that had never been really done before. Um, you know, first it was cookies in the US, then it was cookies globally. And then it was mobile device IDs came into play in 2013 and 14. And the industry just kept changing and changing. And I, I, I learned along with it. So I don't know, I just never felt. And, I, and then I sang karaoke sometimes. <laughs> you know, that's how I did my music thing. But I, I just felt like I was back in it. And I was where I belonged at that time in my life. And I, and I really had a good time. So what's really interesting about your overall arc is that normally the majority of the people tend to go learn at the really large firm and then, you know, get more responsibility at smaller places because they have more control. You did a little bit of a reverse step when you went to Google. What was that transition like and, and what was appealing to you about that? A lot of people go from small companies to Google, but more people go from consulting firms to Google or, you know, investment banks to Google or whatever, or they, you know, so I'm in making science now, which is just to context, making science is about 1400 people globally, right? Lotomy was about 140 people and Google was 140,000 people. So I kind of had, I call, I call making science my Goldilocks job because, you know, Lotomy was too small, Google was too big and making science is just right. And so the transition was, weird and i mean low to me i, I kind of went from like you said i went from senior data analyst and i was uh, on the data team and then i kind of 2014 was a big crossroads where, where our chief operating officer brought me and one other guy who i'm still friends with into the into the room and said i've got a business development job and i've got this data gm job and i was like i want the pnl because i ran the bar and i you know i'm excited to try this in the real world <laughs> you know in the, in the business world so that was a good decision, you know, and I was able to like grow that revenue from 2 million to 40 million over the course of, you know, several years and, you know, got more and more responsibility as I went. So, you know, 
being CRO on the executive team with reporting to the CEO and 140 person company and was, was great. I mean, it was exciting. And like, you know, I had 50 people under me globally, you know, in Asia, Europe, South America, you know, South America, LATAM and, and the U S. And so I wasn't even looking for a job. I just got the CRO job a little while earlier and I just made my 18 month plan. And I was, you know, we were doing making products and we're making plans to sell them in the right places at the right people and all that. And I got a message from a junior recruiter at Google on LinkedIn, and it was like, hey, we have this global director job of you know uh, managing a team of global salespeople that are going to sell data and tech to Google's biggest clients. And I saw the job description. I was like, this is what I do. I mean, this like couldn't be more perfect. It was just crazy. you know. I, and I never listened to LinkedIn messages about recruitment, but this I was like, it's Google. Let me listen. You know? I went and I had like a zillion interviews. It was horrible. Horrible process, two months, and I couldn't tell anybody, you know, it loaded me because, you know, you're a leader and you're like one of the most senior people in the company. And this is a funny story, you know, I, like, so I was like stressed out for two months and I was just like, the first interview was fine. Like, you know, here's what I do and this, da, da, da. And then the junior recruiter passed me to a senior recruiter. And then the senior recruiter passed like, two, two hours with that person, passed me to like the VP who I'd be reporting to, who I love, by the way. Paul Embry, Australian guy who's like incredible and he's still at Google and he's doing really well. Learned a lot from him. But anyway, so, but after the second interview and the third interview, I was like, ooh, maybe I could get this. Maybe I want this, you know? And then it's like, now you're going to bed thinking about it. You're waking up thinking about it. Meanwhile, you're trying to do your job and lead all these people and super hard. Now, the week before, roughly the week before, I think I'm going to get a decision from Google after like seven or eight weeks of this stuff, the head of product that loaded me quit to go to Amazon. So, I was running sales. He was running product. And so our boss, the CEO, called me. I was driving to Virginia with Nicole. And he calls me and he says, Adam's leaving. You know, so now we have to do blah, blah, blah. And I was like thinking, and Nicole looks at me with this face like, oh, my God, dude. Like, this is terrible for him and for you because he's going to lose us. The two people running the company basically at the same time. And I just I was like, God, gosh, darn it, Adam, like. You beat me to it, you know, I wish I was first. So anyway, I got the gig and, and then I went to Google. So what that was like was like big company stuff. I had never worked at a big, you know, Bain was fairly big, but it was like still small teams and that sort of stuff. And it was like, you go direct, as you know, go direct to the partner and the partner, they have a committee somewhere where you never see or care about and need to do your job and make your money. Google was like, man, like layers and layers and layers and layers and they, I don't know. I've never worked at another giant company like that, but it just feels like the ambiguity and like the fact, the the lack of org charts and things, it's all like they, they, they've tried to keep maintain this culture that Larry and Sergey put in in 1996 to say, you know, we're going to always be this or that. But like, you know, when you turn into a city size and you're like a world leader in business, it's hard to keep that, but they've tried. And so anyway, I could talk about Google all day, but it's really, really interesting. You know, you meet great people, but I couldn't do as much. You know, it's like that class, like I, you know, I, was a, I went from chief revenue officer to a director. You know, there's 8,000 directors at Google. So you do the math and, you know, and so, you know, and, and case in point, like one of the phrases I always say, I, I, I advise a lot of people, they'll pee me on LinkedIn that I've known over the years or they'll, you know, they'll be like, hey, I'm thinking about a career change or I'm trying to do this or that. What should I do? You know, and I, I always say, do what's best for you. No matter what, do what's best for you and your family. 
your team will understand, you know, you can work through it. But like, I would never tell anybody on my team not to do what's best for them. Like, even though business wise or hurt me and inconvenience me and find somebody else backfill, blah, blah, blah. I just say, do what's best for you because this is not show friends. This is show business. You know, Jerry Maguire is like my, one of my favorite movies. And so like, I just always think about Bob Sugar in that moment, but like, it's not show friends, this is show business. And so Google, for all of its joy, I felt like business Disneyland for the first couple of years I was there, you know, but then COVID ended and the growth slowed down and like Ruth Porat was there to like make Google a real company. And, and I understand all that. I mean, like, you know, you want the stock price to go up. I think shareholder value, while a great capitalist ideal is also one of the biggest things that causes problems in the, in the world. And that's a story for another day. But, you know, I don't matter. You know, um, my team didn't matter. You know, they just like one day I, I, I was there three years. I had a guy on my team who's now on my team at Making Science was at Google for 10 years. And one of the, I mean, top 1% performer, one of the most reputable, best, smartest guys ever knows Google so well, super smart, super friendly, super professional, one of the best salespeople I've ever been around. 10 years, he got, he woke up to an email on a Friday with his email cut off, you know, the email to his personal address you know, good luck, you know, same with me. I woke up and we all woke up to an email that said, you no longer work here. No notice, no nothing, just like mob hit to the back of the head. And that, that hurts, you know, it's hard to process and, and, but it's, it's reality. And that, that to me, it, you know, 50 years old or whatever, 51 gives you a different perspective. So that was kind of like the, you know, we've seen, of course, you know, you and I have seen zillions of layoffs around around the U.S. in the last few years for a lot of reasons. And that's just the reality of being in business and especially at a big business. Low to me, much more loyal. You know, loyalty was there and stuff. But again, I know a guy at Low to me that I worked with on my team. He was there 17 years and he got laid off without knowing about it recently. Small company, you know. PE comes in or some new management comes in. It's just the way business works. And so always do what's best for you is what I, is what I tell people that I'll be, I'll be there to support it as best I can. I almost feel like it's good to experience that early on in your career because you, you enter into one of these great companies is a great culture. You're young. It really makes you feel like we're part of the family. When then something like this happened, it really hurts. It's hard not to take it personal, even though with an amount, with amount of experience and being able to look at the business from the outside, you're like, oh, well, it, it really wasn't me. But I think it also helps, as you said, to make the right decisions for you as you move through the career. If you think back about all these years, how has your definition of success changed for you from when, you know, we started at Bain and singing a bowl in the house to now that you're CEO of Making Science? I think success, I read a few, I mostly for my hobbies, I focus on sports, as you know, it makes me happy and it's easy, to, it's easy to follow and it's not controversial. And I mean, it is, but in a fun way, but personal success for me is finding fulfillment and finding joy. And I think everybody, like I was raised Catholic, you know, and I, you know, was very, uh, and, you know, went to the choir school and sang in more masses than most people will go in their whole lives. And I don't know. I just, my, my views have changed over the year about that. I'm, you know, more like either agnostic or whatever. And I just, you know, and I just think that every single day is so important 
and precious. And I'm just so glad. It's like, again, Jerry Maguire, when his old boss woke up and clapped his hands and said, I'm glad to be here and alive and I'm going to make the most of today. I really believe that. I mean, it's hard to to have that perspective every day, you know, if you're going through stuff. But I mean, that's ideally you find joy and fulfillment in as many minutes as you can. And so personally, success, that's success to me is like, is like ignoring noise, ignoring, you know, trying to keep the negative influences out of your life, you know, dealing with things that you have to, but finding joy. And then from, you know, from a business perspective and from a leadership perspective, it's trying to help, you know, your team and other people to, to do the same and, and whatever that means for them. And it's not always easy, you know? I mean, my boss at Making Science, the global CEO, Hama is like, he's an engineer by trade. He's really, really impressive. Like I said, I was in demand. I had a lot of opportunities and I just, I, I believe in him. I admire him. I wanted to see what we could do in the US with a cool company that had a ton of great technology and really, really a big leader in Spain in our space. And he would always say, he always writes really kind of things to think about personally in addition to the business and all the engineering and like incredible smarts he has around M&A and like how to grow a company and things that I've learned from him. But like, just personally, like, what are you trying to get out of your job, right? You're trying to get like personal fulfillment, sense of belonging, money, everybody needs money, like an office space where you feel comfortable and you look forward to going in, you know, most days, a sense of, of value for like a hard day's work, you feel good at the end of the day, like all that sort of stuff. And people are motivated by different things. And, you know, that joy and fulfillment means different things to different people. And so it goes back to self-awareness to me. Like, how do I help contribute to each person's joy and find out what that is? You know, you're not going to get it right. But, you know, you try to get as close as you can to understanding the person. And, like, I I just I take my job personally, you know, like, and, and I think everybody does to a certain extent. It ain't show friends, it's show business, but you're still a person. And so you're and everybody is a person and they're trying to, like, figure out how, you know, you're there eight hours a day and like you spend more time doing that than you do anything else and it's weird right it's like when you ask somebody what's important to them they say my family my my dog my you know my kids whatever but that's not where you spend your time so like you have to and, and you don't get all your fulfillment out of that if you said a lot of people are very motivated by success and you know business success and quotes and and doing great things, you know, um, to the detriment of their family a lot of times. So anyway, whatever that stuff is, I find success for me now as a leader is trying to do that. And and what re- nothing frustrates me more than when I can't help. I try to fix everything. You know, I'm a fixer. My wife says, like, don't try to fix it. Just listen to me and, like, let me say my thing. You don't have to fix anything. Just listen. But I'm always trying to, like, make it better. I mean, like, somebody feels bad at work because of, the, you know, they're – they're not getting a lot of collaboration from another department or whatever. I'm like, okay, let me send an email. Let's get everybody together. We'll figure out what's going on and make it, make it better. And like, so I try to do that all the time. It's not always like, you know, it's frustrating when you can't and it's not always what's needed. So there's no right answer all the time. It's just, I take it personally when other people are having a bad time on my team, on my watch, you know? Well, this is a, a great spot to sort of stop this part of the conversation. So if people want to learn more about you or making science, where can they go? Obviously making science.com easy enough. That's talks about what we do as a, uh, a Google heavy data and tech partner. And then I'm on LinkedIn, Jason Downey, D O W N I E. It's weird. And, um, 
Facebook, if you want to be my friend, let me know. Happy to be friend. I like friends. Great. This feels like it's been a really personal conversation up to here, but I'm going to go to what I call the personal section of the podcast. And the first question, even though probably we've, we've talked about it a lot, you know, I always ask people, what's a passion or hobby that you have outside of work and how has that changed your life? But is there anything that is not music that is relevant or important to you? Yeah, actually, I have in the last several years, I've got a real passion for hiking, trekking in the outdoors. So I would say that's that's a bigger passion of mine now than music even. I mean, at least on par. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I, I quit drinking in 2017. And I had to fill my time with more th other things and reorganize my priorities. My wife, Nicole, and I have found something that we both really love to do. You know, Nicole would say that I, I don't do anything halfway. Uh, I would, you know, it's, it's like full go all the time. It's part of my addictive personality, <laughs> you know, whatever. So I try to use my superpowers for good now. I work out every day, you know, an hour every day. Come hell or high water, I try to do it even when I'm traveling. And those things, because I get bored easily, I switch those up. But I, uh, we recently went to Mount Everest base camp in October. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro two years before that. And we hiked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu two years before that. Got, got engaged at Machu Picchu, had our honeymoon at Mount Kilimanjaro. And then just uh, kind of just did the Everest thing, which was a lifelong dream of mine. So that's a real big passion, just training for that. And then the sense of fulfillment and worth you get. Being outdoors, being unplugged, being away from things and learning about other cultures and traveling the world. I mean, super, I'm super passionate about the travel and about being outdoors. I would say like, you know, all the parties, the dinner parties and the bars and the, and the gigs and all that stuff, it kind of all runs together. It's great and it's super fun, but like, you know, the last week of my life, I'll remember, you know, summiting Kilimanjaro and walking back across that ridge and looking out over above the clouds and looking down at a 17,000 foot mountain and knowing that I walked up there with my wife and, you know, and a bunch of cool people from Africa that like helped me get there. And so I'm, I just love it. So I'm looking for more things to do that way. You know, travels big for Nicole and I, like we're going to Galapagos Islands the next in, in like three weeks. So we'll see some of that. And then we're doing a trek in Iceland in the summer. The um, I can't say it right, but Lagerbaker Trail, we're going to do that. And then next year, my plan is to do the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is 100 miles around Mont Blanc in France. I grew up skiing in Courmayeur when I was living in Milan. That's my favorite, the Mont Blanc, that's my favorite place in the world, the Mont Blanc. There you go. I'm excited to, to see that. I'll have to plus one you when I, when I get a chance. But anyway, outside of work, that's what I'm doing. Okay. Now, my favorite question, it is... And you and I have been through a lot of these, you know, every era has jargon or business expressions that get so overused that they lose meaning, which is the one that drives you crazy? AI, 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 AI. I was at Google earlier this week and they have this cut up. Google puts up a video. It's so funny. You can probably find it on, on YouTube where Sundar Pichai, who's the, who's the Google CEO, was at Google Marketing Live last year. And he must have said AI, like, I don't know, whatever, a thousand times. And so they... Some Googler, I think, probably engineer, cut it, cut up his the video of his talk, and you know, put it into fifteen seconds. And he's like AI, AI, the help with AI, AI. It's, it's really funny, but you know, as it applies to like the world, of course, artificial intelligence is massively important, and it's going to shape our future. Like it's going to literally shape your yours and my future for the rest of our lives, and it's going to create 
progress and ethical dilemmas and I mean all sorts of stuff. It's gonna be crazy town. I mean, we're at the very beginning and you know, for those of you who know Moore's Law, I like to say Moore's Law is no longer applicable. You know, it's like doubling in two years or whatever, it's gone. It's like, you know, doubling in two weeks in a lot of cases for AI. So so it's important. But a lot of times people will talk about it without, you know, most of the time I think. When I go to these conferences and I talk to people and in my industry, which is, you know, digital marketing and uh, media enablement, you know, they're like, oh, we're just going to do the AI. You know, we're going to let the AI do it. Oh, well, like what kind of AI? You know, is it predictive modeling? Is it generative AI? Is it uh, automation? You know, what, what, what are you trying to do with that stuff? So it's just, that's a pet peeve of mine. It's like, it's like people that I, I, you know, you can tell, like, I clearly know you don't know what you're saying. You're just saying the AI is going to help you, you know, solve all your problems, but digging in and understanding how and why and what the use cases are and all that sort of stuff is really, really important. And I tell all my clients and prospects, like you got to, for whatever it is you're doing, any industry, you know, I think BCG or McKinsey, one of them put out a thing recently that shows like the impact of AI on every business, every, every industry, you know, retail, e-commerce, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. And like, to varying degrees, it's going to affect, you know, each of those, everybody all over the world. You need to figure out how AI is applied to your line of work or to your life or whatever, if you're interested. And then just like going deep and experiment, you know, create a culture of experimentation, create a culture of failing fast, you know, failing small, failing fast so you can win big and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's that's where we're at. But uh, just saying like AI is going to help me is not enough. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And it's your choice if you go the body route, a recipe or a food or something that you find particularly rewarding or nourishing right now. Or if you go the soul route, a piece of music, a piece of art, movie, theater, such as something that sort of feeds your soul right now. So many things. I'm definitely going to be regretting that I said one thing and not the other. But I love cheeseburgers. And... I've watched a lot of these shows over there the last few years about on Netflix about, you know, the twin studies, the new one on vegans and that sort of thing. And, you know, the worldwide meat industry is like killing our climate and all that sort of stuff. And it's all factual, but I still love a cheeseburger, man. So I need them to figure out how to make, make impossible burgers really, really great. I was in Chicago, which is where our HQ opened up this year, making science. Uh, USHQ is in Chicago and there's a place there called Ocheval, which makes, you know, one of the top five best cheeseburgers in the world every year, consensus. And it was so, so good. I mean, I just I love a good cheeseburger. So I have to I have to find the, the middle ground between health and environment and, and my love of eating a nice juicy cheeseburger. That's great. But Jason, thank you so much for your frankness. Honestly, it was a fascinating conversation. It's great to reconnect. For sure. You know, anytime. I loved it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, go and check out the catalog. I'm sure there's plenty of episodes that you haven't heard who may be really of interest to you. Also, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. 
For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure you follow us on whatever social network you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Saurino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here is No Hard Seer by Susan Cattaneo. Woke up in a red haze With a well of sadness in my chest We're deep in the dark days But I was so sure we were better than this You want it all But how can you live with yourself? It's too close to call Yet it's crystal clear There are no hearts here, just an empty shell No hearts here, as near as I can tell Thought I saw your heart upon your sleeve you believe